Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, and welcome to the Northern Numbers, the podcast that gets the human stories behind the stats. We've got a football special for you this week, which means Annie's handed over hosting duties to me, David Dubas Fisher. With the European Championship starting in just over a month's time, we're going to be taking a look at the England men's national team and the North's amazing record at producing players. This is the North in numbers, so let's begin with some stats. A total of 1,259 players have represented the England men's team. 556 of those were born in the North of England. The Northwesters produced more players than any region in the country, with 282 to date. However, when you take population into account, it's the Northeast which comes out on top. 145 England stars were born in the region, which works out as around one for every 18,000 people currently living there. So why is the Northeast so good at producing England players? John Gibson has been covering football in the region for over 50 years. I spoke to him to find out. I think the the reason is that football originated as a working men's sport and uh, this is a working class area. We're known historically for both football and for producing boxers, top fighters. And I think the reason is because of the poverty that was up here originally, the one way out for the working man was to excel at sport, excel at football or at boxing. And the passion that that created has remained ever since. I mean, you've only got to look at the, the local club, Newcastle United. I mean, they've, they've never won the championship since 1927. The last domestic cup was 1955. And yet they get 50,000 every week coming to support them without any success whatsoever, because it's just a religion up here, uh, football. And we have produced a lot of stunning, stunning players and continue to do so, of course. And of course, this area, David, has got one of the greatest soccer nurseries, if you like, in the whole of England with Walls End Boys Club. It was a club that was started by Swan Hunters for the shipyard workers right back in 1904, and it's now Walls Boys Club. It's produced something like 80 full-time footballers throughout its life, and it's produced five England players. I mean, Alan Shearer, Peter Beardsley, Michael Carrick, Fraser Foster, the goalkeeper that's at Southampton now, and Alan Thompson, all played for England out of Walls Boys Club, and they're continuing to churn out quality players to this day. Mine, David, guess I was a bit tasty as a player. I know, do you think in 1990 with England, he, he was so gifted. 
And yet, when he first come to us, you know, as, as a kid, he was a little fat kid. I mean, he was a little Billy Bundy. Everybody, oh, who's this? What's he doing? And, and Jack, big Jack John, who was manager at the time, got him in and said, listen, you've got to lose two stone in the next month or you're not going to get another contract. Because all he was doing was eating Mars bars. He, all, all he did when he went to training, during training, after training, was eat Mars bars. I mean, New, Newcastle fans, when he come back, was first, threw Mars bars on the pitch to him when, when he was playing against Newcastle in the hope that he would eat, that he would eat them and stop playing so well. But uh, <laughs> but he was he was a lovely little kid who um, just out of Red Youth Boys Club in Gateshead uh, that produced, like we were talking about, Wolves End Boys Club, produced good players and he was as good as they got. And if he hadn't had that bad injury at Spurs, would have been even better for even longer. I went out to uh, Rome to stay with Gaza and do some features, you know, the Jolly Abroad and all that business. Uh, and he was recovering at that time from the very, very bad injury at Spurs. Lazio were already committed to, to taking him, so he was uh, he was with them. And I went to a match with him. He wasn't playing because he was injured. But the adulation at that match, the, the more Lazio fans turned round, not facing the pitch, to, to face uh, Gaza sitting in the stand and applaud him. And, that, and what we've got to remember, of course, is his great England moments, 1990, were in Italy. Merseyside is another hotbed when it comes to producing England players. A total of 41 were born in Liverpool, which is more than any city outside of London, while a total of 73 are from the wider Merseyside area. David Raven, captain England at youth level, playing alongside the likes of Wayne Rooney. He made his professional debut for Liverpool and currently plays for Marine, who enjoyed an amazing FA Cup run this season, which ended in a match against Spurs. Here's why he thinks the region has such a good record at producing England internationals. I think looking at the, the way people are up here, um, I think, one, the football is, is, is bigger here in terms of People, it's a religion. Uh, so, like, the likes of the, the Roonies and Gerrards, they are like gods to people. And it's like kids will just look up to them, do whatever they take. So you could probably liken it to the Jamaican sprinters. Um, now, it's tiny island for some reason. They're producing sprinters, like, left, right and centre, uh, the best in the world. And part of the reason is that they've got uh, role models to look up to, to become. And I think Liverpool produces that. I think the other thing as well, it produces lads with grit. Uh, so like, let's take, for instance, where I am now playing in uh, Marine, um, you know, a bunch of Scouse lads. Teams just don't like playing Scousers. It's as simple as that. Um, they don't like playing Scousers. You wouldn't probably like playing Northeast lads as well. The tough, tough lads, they got grit. Um, the streetwise, and I think that helps. And it's that that attitude, I think, that, that is produced up here. Uh, it's quite unique. The idea of footballers of religion is one shared by David Prentice, sports editor for the Liverpool Echo and author of the Everton book, A Grand Old Team to Report. Well, I know it sounds like a bit of a cliche, but, but football is almost a religion in these parts. It's not just an entertainment or, you know, sort of something that people dip in and out of. It actually envelops every, every you know, sort of waking minute of, you know, sort of most people's lives. And it's, it's quite strange, actually, when you talk about um, the statistics there regarding England internationals, because we're always quite proud of the fact on Merseyside that we are almost like the People's Republic of Merseyside. And we actually turn our back on the establishments and on the, sort of the national team. 
And, you know, obviously the players that have gone on to represent England do so, you know, so very proudly. I know Wayne Rooney is immensely proud of the, uh, the achievements that he, and the records that he set there with the England national team. But largely, it's all about the clubs on Merseyside, Everton, Liverpool, to a lesser degree, Tranmere, obviously. And whenever there's an international weekend, we're just desperately hoping that our top players don't get injured and come back safe and sound. So it is, it's, it's quite ironic, really, that you know, so Liverpool should produce so many accomplished England internationals, but also not surprising, you know, so given, you know, it's like I say, how much of a passion the sport is you know, so on Merseyside. Um, I mean, Wayne Rooney, he joined Everton, oh gosh, I think he was, might have been about uh, 10 years old when he first came out to the Everton Academy. And I always remember the first time I heard his name mentioned because I had uh, gone down, as I did every Monday morning, to speak to Colin Harvey, who was then the, the Everton Youth Academy director. And Everton had lost that particular weekend 2-1. He said, yeah, yeah, we lost 2-1. Didn't play particularly well. Uh, like called Rooney, scored the goal. And I just said, Rooney? Don't, don't recognise that name. He said, no, nah, you wouldn't, lad. He's only 14. I said, 14? And he's playing for the under-19s. And Colin was not a man to dispense praise easily. And his eyes just like, you know, sort of glazed over. And he said, oh, yeah, this kid's like a young Dalgleish, only quicker of thought and quicker across the floor. And uh, he says, and don't put that in your bloody paper. So, so you know, so I, we, I didn't. We sat on it for, you know, so a year or two longer. But, you know, he was playing first-team football at the age of 17. So people were very aware of uh, Wayne Rooney from a very young age. But, yeah, he was at Everson on the Youth Academy, you know, from almost like a junior schoolboy before he even gone to secondary school. So what's it like to be a young player making your way through the ranks at a club and going on to represent your country? David Raven explains. I was terrified. I got to the stadium, wasn't nervous. I got to the stadium, White Hart Lane, and I was like, oh, oh, like they put the team up when we got in the changing room and they had all of the getters out. And I was thinking, oh my God, get out to warm up. And, that, and it's a full house. It's White Hart Lane, fully packed. And um, it took me 15 minutes, I'd say, probably to settle into the game. And then when I settled into the game, it was like, wow, this is great. Really enjoyed it. The roar of the crowd, like the, the lights were on. Um, I felt great. I was up and down. It went into extra time. I wanted, I didn't want the game to finish. So we went to penalties and I was gutted it finished. Everyone went home and I just had such, it was such a great experience. Um, but again, it was, it was a nerve wracking experience. I mean, I can look back now and say it was brilliant and, and everything else, but you, you just take it in your stride and you think, right, okay, there's one done. Where's me next? Where's me next? And you just look to the next one and it's sort of put behind you. Um, it got a lot of good press at the time. But I was just thinking, well, I want my next game. I want my next game. Um, which, you know, I, I had three or four games. I had four games in, in the end and um, it just didn't happen for me quite. You know, I just couldn't make that that step up. Wasn't quite good enough. Uh, didn't quite get that chance. And, and I, so it was like, right, I need to leave now. I need to Because I've had that first team taste. I need to go and play. So that's what I did. And so we like, let's take Trent, for example, you know. He's not just settled into the level. He's he's took Liverpool to the next level, hasn't he? He's moved on. He's an international. He's creating goals. Um, so that's the sort of player that they need coming through. There's no point getting a guy who can just play. Then now, one of the things I was noticed walking out against, you know, Premiership sides was the just general size of these boys and how comfortable they are on the ball and stuff. And yeah, it's a huge leap. It is a huge leap. There's a massive gap between that playing in the 23s, playing in reserves, and then bang, there you go, first team, crowd are there the big boys are playing. This is the big boys game now, you know? So yeah, it's a massive, massive jump. I mean, that's why so many people just can't make that, that step. And it goes, that goes by the way for the league as well. There's lads who can play training games and, and are brilliant in training, 
yeah, when it comes to a Saturday, you just they just can't make that step out so out onto that pitch. There's a there's a mentality thing stopping them there. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a huge huge difference. The victory shield was was massive for me back in the like, and it was for people that used to be on on Sky and all that, and and that was one of the highlights even now of my career. When I look back and representing England, a captain England, it was on Sky. I was like, wow, this is this is the real deal, you know, this is great. Um, I felt so proud. I went through the thing as well, up to the under twenties. Uh, didn't make an under twenty one appearance, but I captained my country up to then, and in um, you know. Things like the the European Championships in Denmark when we had the likes of Wayne Rooney in the team and and I was captain in it. I was just so proud of that. I can't really explain. I mean, we were, I think I swapped shirts with Wayne Rooney and he said just oh, he wanted the captain's armband as well. I said yeah, hundred percent there because we signed each other's shirts and stuff just in case we became footballers and stuff. And um, and one of the things he wanted was that. And I was like yeah, absolutely yeah. And and obviously there was respect there that he had for that as well. So. No, that, that's just an amazing feeling playing playing for your country. It was again, I've got like little shirts all in the loft now, but um, that you know games are played in Portugal's France and all this sort of people. So it was great. It was amazing. Wayne came back from that under seventeen championships as a sixteen year old, and then the week after he scored against Arsenal. So the week before, I was sitting on a plane on the way back, having we had a right laugh and stuff like that, and. Um, the week after, I mean, it wasn't even a week. I think it was a few days. Within a few days, he'd scored against Arsenal and went, went superstar status. And he was just on his way. I did, didn't for one minute think he'd he'd do what he'd done. It, you know, top scorer for England and Man United, stuff like that. I, I didn't, you never think that he'd, he'd achieve stuff like that. Um, but we all thought at the time that, yeah, we're going to have careers in the premiership and everything else. And um, so, yeah, it was, it was just sort of you take it for granted a little bit at the time, yeah. England have an extraordinary array of talent in their senior squad and are one of the favourites to win the upcoming European Championships. These things don't happen by chance though, and are as a result of a lot of hard work which goes on behind the scenes. One person charged with helping bring through the next generation of stars is England under-19s coach Ian Foster, who spoke to me about the work he and the FA do to help develop young players. These young players technically outstanding players you know and unfortunately for, for those guys they were they were able to get um the experiences that um that we hope to you know in in the england pathway we hope to give these these young players so that when they go and play in the seniors you know they've been to european championships they've been deep into tournaments they've been to world cups they've been to the subcontinent as coaches you've got to be aware that everyone's development's different and it, and, and 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 different players take time to to get to the highest level um and i think positionally you've got to look at that as well so like i say the forward players might get in sooner than than the defensive ones but so i was a young player at liverpool and we played for our school our district our county our grassroots team so i played for a team called western juniors and it and, and it was different then now the players um are in the, the academies from six seven years of age some of them they're not only technically outstanding but athletically um, our, our players are, are really good. The game understanding's better. Um, so I think what English coaches and England teams are inheriting is is a fabulous product from from the academy systems. I just think you know, for, for, from our perspective, we just have to go where the talent is. There's no badge bias in terms of where you're watching a player. So whether it's a player who's come through the academy at, at a League Two or One club. Or, or whether he's come through a Category One academy at Premier League level, you know we, we've we've got to 
we've got to see where the talent is and that can take us all that can take us here there and everywhere these days you know a lot of our players are not only based in England now but a lot are based overseas Several key members of the senior England squad came through the ranks of lower league clubs the English Football League plays a key role in developing the next generation of footballers. Ex-Leeds United and Bradford City defender David Weatherall is now head of youth development at the EFL. I asked him about the work being done to support clubs and their academies. At the present time, out of our 72 clubs, we have, we have 67 clubs operating within the, uh, the licensed academy system. And, and the, uh, the system is, is termed um, a system under the Elite Player Performance Plan, which is... You know, we work in, in, in partnership with the, uh, with the with the Premier League to operate an academy system across the, uh, the the professional clubs, if you like. So, you know, we've got a lot of of clubs operating academies. I, I head up a department that, that supports those those academies. We have team a team of regional managers who, who go out and, and and support those clubs, and um, and just try and optimise the work that, that that they do in in, in youth development. And um, you know there there is some some excellent work going on in the uh, in, in the EFL clubs and Premier League clubs at, at this time, and I think we we have as in as in the, the sort of first team structure we have people talk about the pyramid that leads on naturally almost to the to the pyramid in terms of youth development, and um, you know it, it, it gives if you like real good coverage across the across the the country. It, um, the Man United goalkeeper Dean Henderson, for example, came came through at Carlisle. So there are examples all over the the, the place of of you know young players coming through EFL academies and then making the, uh, the the move on, if you like, or or in Calvin Phillips' case, getting promoted with their club to uh, to, to 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 play in the uh, in, in in the Premier League and go on to uh, to be involved in in national squads. One thing that won't change is. There's only going to be 11 starting places in the first team on a on, on a Saturday, so not every player is going to is, is going to make it through and have a, a long career as a professional. Everybody knows that and, and should be should be fully aware of that. So the provisions that are that are in place now, you know, starts really with with uh, I think a real the bedrock of this is education, and there's a there's a, a a lot of focus now on making sure that any involvement with an academy. Right from the age of you know nine years old, doesn't impact on a, on a player's education. So a lot of, of interaction between the club and the school to make sure that's the case, and also as players move then through the through the pathway and and gain a gain a scholarship at um, at, at seventeen, a large part of that scholarship is is focused on education. So you know when some players come out of of, of the system and don't offer a professional contract, for example, then. The ones who who are who who had the potential, if you like, to achieve academically, are able to then move on into into sort of a university and environment. Also, we have a lot of you know, safeguarding provision. There's a lot of um, life skills kind of um, provision within, and it's set, that's set out within the rules. The clubs have to provide this this life skills training for for players in a, in, a, in a variety of areas. So hopefully we're in a, we're in a place now. It's off, the academy system is often viewed, and I think you know, my view is it, it, it shouldn't necessarily or at all be like this. In that, it's only positive for the players that go on and have a, a long career in the game. I think where where, where we want to get to and, and how, how the situation is in, in so many areas, it's a, it's a positive experience for the for the boys who actually you know get then get released. But they hopefully they had a real good experience and it's helped them develop as people. And footballers, um, so that you know, whenever they come out of, of the system, 
they can look back and say we've actually had a positive experience and it's been a, it's been a, a, you know, a, a, a good time in their in their in their lives. It's obviously the release point will be a disappointment. You know, I don't think we'll ever get away from that. We're really striving to get to that point where it's a positive experience for all. But I know you know I, I came into this this role um, nearly ten years ago, just when the elite player performance plan was being was being formulated. And I know in that time, a short time before that, really a few years before that, I, I started working in the academy system. And I think what, what what's happened under the elite player performance plan is, is yes, a lot of a lot of provisioning sort of welfare area that, that we've talked about and education, etc. But also the organization of, of, of academies in kind of minimum standards, I suppose, of operating. So things like just making sure that that there's that. A, a detailed coaching curriculum in place that everyone's clear how the academy and the first team play just get everybody to think about how all the coaches coach and they, these are real fundamentals but really focusing on 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 those and making sure they're in place the academy system now is is, is, is far more structured um and i so said with with the audit system that we have in place and the assessment system and the support for clubs from the leagues as well then um you know, I think I think we've got a system that is that is is um, starting to demonstrate um, some real positive outcomes in terms of the quality of players that's coming through. I think that you know the, the reputation of young English players is 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 very very high, and um, you know that's been that that's reflective of some of the success that that the age group national teams have had, but also the number of players now who are who are in high demand from from clubs on the continent for example you know we see the likes of Bellingham and Sancho etc coming through and but um, you know that 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 type of plan the, the just general reputation of English qualified players now is is, um, is very high a podcast made in 2021 won't be complete without a section on the COVID-19 pandemic with games being played behind closed doors for over 12 months now the pandemic is set to change the financial landscape of the game but could this actually provide more opportunities for young players trying to make a name for themselves? Ian Foster and David Weatherall shared their thoughts. I hope our young players get opportunities to, to, to play, um, whether that's at their senior club or whether it's out on loan. I think the Football League is an excellent model for our young players to go and um, get first-team experience. Uh, some choose not to go overseas um, as an experience, but... Um, the financial landscape is going to change in the football world and um, and hopefully you see one or two more young players get an opportunity to play first team football. Yeah, it's, 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 a real, it's a real good question. And, you know, clubs will will make their own their own decisions on that. I think that there is a danger that, that one way to look at it is that expenditure on academies will be will be one of the first things to, to, to be cut. But I think that, um, you know, as you, as you say, the counter argument to that is that developing players through your own own academy can be a really cost effective mechanism to to developing that uh, that that squad of players that you, that you have at first team level and being financially beneficial for the uh, for the football club overall so um you know there's there's, there's no signs at the minute of, of mass closure of academies you know we we we're really hopeful that they keep on producing positive outcomes and and, and the clubs see that from a, from both you know both on the pitch and and um, also from a financial perspective that's all from us this week hope you've enjoyed it and thanks for listening thank you too to all my guests this episode was written by me david Dubas fisher and produced by mark mcgill 
Join us again on the 21st of May for a special episode when Annie Gork will be taking a look behind the scenes to showcase some of the important work being done in the world of local data. The North in Numbers is a laudable production. 